I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2 for our uh, time in the Word. It's been a joyous time of singing, reflection, what a great mission spotlight to hear uh, what God is doing in the ministry of Brody and Liz Olson and to consider what is happening over there uh, today. Uh, we rejoice in that together as well. Uh, we've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, as we've walked through it, uh, the last several sermons, I have suggested that the, the emphasis is on some of the blessings of the incarnation, or Jesus being made flesh. I thought this was a great theme to continue to pursue with you uh, as we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 2. Over the years, uh, many of the most severe forms of heresy that the church has ever experienced have been in the area or the, within the doctrine of Christology. Some have denied the deity of Jesus Christ, others have rejected the humanity of Jesus Christ or offered some sort of middle ground that really didn't justify the work of Jesus Christ being made flesh. My opinion, though, Hebrews 1 and 2 offer remedies for these heresies. There are perhaps no clearer or more powerful testimonies to the deity of Jesus Christ than what you see in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. You look there in your Bible, and it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's very clear in that passage that God the Father refers to the Son as God and claims that he has an eternal kingdom that will never end. But then you come across passages like the one we studied last week in Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 14, where you, uh, I think, see some of the, you know, the clearest evidence of the full humanity of Jesus Christ, where Jesus becomes flesh and he calls us brothers, and the text says he shares in our flesh and blood. Christ is a God-man in one person, and, and in our text this morning, I think we can learn even more about the nature of his deity and his humanity. So I'd like to start us this morning with a word of prayer. Let's go to prayer. Your fathers, we come to you this morning. We ask for a proper focus on Jesus Christ during this Christmas season. We come to you today to rejoice in your selfless and sacrificial love for us. And we come to you in prayer to thank you for Jesus. And we ask you to teach us more about him today. Help us understand him in greater and newer ways. I pray for unbelievers here today under the sound of my voice. I pray that this morning they will be wooed and won by the Spirit. That Jesus would be irresistible for them today. And that is what we see in Scripture would be so amazing to them that they would turn to Jesus Christ, believe on him, and repent of their sin. I pray for believers here today that they would be encouraged and strengthened by this text to help, to help them in hundreds or thousands of ways that, that I can't even imagine as they're facing difficulties, as they're suffering in like ways to Jesus Christ. I pray that they would be encouraged and strengthened. And we pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. To you be the glory in the way that I preach this text this morning and in the way that we receive it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, the last few weeks we've been looking at some of the benefits of the incarnation or the incarnational ministry of Jesus. Starting in the middle of chapter 2, verse, verse 5, where we learn that first, Jesus was able to accomplish or bring accomplishment 
to God's original design for humanity. We had made a mess of things, but then Jesus comes as the perfect man, and now he sits enthroned, reigning and ruling over creation, the way we were supposed to reign over this orderly creation. We then learned that he glorified God through his great personal suffering in verse 10, and then last week we noticed that one of the blessings of the incarnation is that he created a brotherhood. He created a brotherhood of faith-filled believers uh, in uh, verses 11 through 13. So last week we saw that as a result of Christ being made flesh, that he enjoys a solidarity with us. We're his family. And you can see that evidenced in the text of verses 10 through 13 by him doing things like he calls us brothers and sisters. That's one of the results of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He came and now he calls us brothers and sisters. And not only that, but he delights to sing praises to God in the midst of his brothers and sisters. Quoting from Psalm 22. You remember that from last week? He delights to sing praises to God with us, his brothers and sisters. And then, what, what really floored me last week, something I'd never seen before, he not only calls us brothers and sisters, he calls us children that God has given to him. Remember he quoted from the book of Isaiah, and he says, uh, I will put my trust in God. Yes, I and the children, God, you have given to me. This explains our familial relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not only brothers and sisters, he uses a metaphor, we are his children. But there's even more to learn at the end of Hebrews chapter 2. Today we'll learn two more blessings of the incarnation ministry of Jesus. First, we learn that in his incarnation, Jesus brought victory to those in bondage. And I can't wait to look at this with you. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Here in these three verses, I think we see two goals of Jesus' incarnation. First, Christ became a man to destroy the devil, found in verse 14 here. He became, as the text says, flesh and blood, the two principal elements of human nature. He, he became a human being. And he not only became flesh, he died to destroy, the text says, the one who has the power of death, the devil. The word destroy here is interesting. It means, I, I think this is a great translation, destroy. It means to render completely inoperative to abolish or to bring to nothing. So one of the goals of Jesus in becoming human, being born as a little baby, come to this planet, was to, to obliterate the devil. It's one of his goals. He wanted to destroy him. Now the way that the author of Hebrews describes this, Christ's work, and describes Satan himself in verse 14 is very interesting. I think we need to dig down in here just a little bit. First, to describe Satan. Let's look at Satan. He describes him as, at the very end of the verse, as the devil. You see that in the text? The devil. The word devil, of course, means uh, or speaks of Satan's bringing accusation. It could be the, the accuser. It speaks of Satan's propensity to slander and to bring accusation against human beings. He delights to do that 
before God. Satan is like a prosecuting attorney who continually goes before the judge. He likes to make his case against us. But we'll learn later in this text how Jesus completely incapacitated him in this area. There is now no charge or exhibit that he can bring against us. Nothing can stick. And a little while later, I'll show you how Jesus did that. But second, he not only describes him as a great accuser, he describes Satan as the one having the power of death. Do you see that? And that was an intriguing phrase to me this week. Honestly, I spent a lot of time on that one phrase. The one having the power of death. I want us to stop briefly and look at this description. How does Satan have the power of death? What does that mean? Well, I think it's likely after spending some time studying it this week that uh, Satan does have some power in the area or the realm of death. I don't confess to know at all. I think the text will actually help us a little bit more uh, later to tell us how Satan has power over death. But I think Satan does have power in the area of death because he is the father of sin and death. He, of course, is the first being to have ever sinned. And he seduced man and woman in the garden. So the author of Hebrews says that he has power in the realm of death. I think later on in this text we'll learn that what one of the things this means is that it involves holding people captive as slaves in a fear of death. So as I've wrestled this week, what does it mean when, it's, when it describes Satan as the one who has power over death? I think it's something like this. Satan himself knows the great conscious and subconscious fear that comes when one sins and is under the sentence of God to experience death. He knows what that fear is like. And he delights to use that fear to bully and intimidate humanity and remind them that they will face death. But Jesus came to obliterate the devil and this fear that he would hold over people. The way that he does this is very important too in the text. In verse 14, I think sometimes we can just read over this. The way that Jesus does it in this passage is found in two words. That, and here are two words, through death. Through death. That is, Jesus' plan to obliterate Satan was by means of his own death. There are a few things we can understand pretty clearly in this passage. One is this, if you stop and think about it. Jesus became flesh, according to this text, so that he might die. In his divine being and his divinity, he could not die. So he became flesh that he might die and destroy the one wielding the power of death. Now again, I think we'll learn more about how Jesus' death brought the devil down, because that, that just floored me this week. I mean, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And I'm like, well, how does dying take Satan down? It seems like that'd be like a victory for Satan. How? Well, I think later on in verse 17, we'll learn about that. For now, just know this. One of the purposes of the incarnation of Jesus Christ was to destroy the devil. Destroy the devil. The accomplishment of that first goal, the defeat of the devil, leads naturally to the setting free of those who are held in bondage by him. And that's the way I take verses 15 and 16. 
said, I think there are two goals of Jesus' incarnation, verses 14 through 16. You can see this in two words. Look in the middle of verse 14. That, this is goal one, through death he might des- destroy. That's goal one. You could underline that word, destroy. It's one of the reasons Jesus Christ was made flesh, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. But then you keep reading in your text, and you see the next words of verse 15, and deliver. Okay, so you see Jesus had two goals in the incarnation that the author of Hebrews is pointing out here. He wanted to come to destroy the devil and deliver and rescue. And so uh, we dig into this a little bit more, and we learn that all humanity were held in bondage to something. The actual metaphor, if you go up to verse 14, I think is very powerful. How does he describe them there? Verse 14, since therefore the children. Okay, so the metaphor is actually of the children. What children? The children God had given to him. Okay, so the actual metaphor here is of children cowering in fear, in bondage to something. And the text tells us exactly what they're afraid of. They're cowering in fear. They're serving in lifelong bondage to fear. To fear. And then the text continues to describe the nature of that fear. A fear of death. A fear of death. So the evil tyrant, the devil, holds children in slavery and lifelong bondage to fear of dying. Fear of death. Human beings often fear death. They might experience uh, or fear the experience of death, the moment itself, the pain. What will it be like? They can fear extinction or non-being for some of them. They think it's the end. Some of them fear the separation that death will mean from loved ones. Others fear the unknown. What will death be like? Others feel fear, perhaps, and rightfully so, the eternal punishment that they would face when they die. Some people... Fear, death. Often people do this, but it's interesting to me that there are others who claim that they do not fear death. There's some within our culture and our world today who claim that they, they, they don't fear death at all, that they live in complete and utter freedom to do whatever they want, and they, they have no remorse or thoughts about the end life, end of life. And on the surface, I think it might seem right for them, but even with them, it's my belief that at least subconsciously they are under bondage to a fear of death. They might suppress any thought about death or reflection on it. They ignore it. They distract themselves. But in my opinion, God has not only enabled them to know the truth about himself in creation, Romans chapter 1, but they also know the truth about their own fate. They know death is coming. And I have found that often, as we return to the metaphor here, children are some of the ones who have the gravest fears about death. I've talked with eight and nine and ten-year-olds that I know, and they fear it. They're especially sensitive to this fear. And so what I believe the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's giving us a very powerful metaphor We are like children riddled by fear. And then the devil uses the powerful intimidation of death to keep us in bondage. 
Christ, however, one of the purposes of the incarnation is that he came to help us. If you look at verses 15 and 16, you learn, and, and uh, there are a few things the author of Hebrews says. He says, first, he did not come to help angels. Okay, and that returns us to, you know, chapter 1. Just remind us of the context. But then he continues to describe a little f- further. He did not just come uh, not only to help angels, but he came to those uh, who, the text says, uh, he comes to help the offspring of Abraham. You see that in your Bible? Offspring of Abraham could be translated the seed of Abraham. I think this could be a description of the Jewish descendants of Abraham, you know, his physical descendants, but I think it's better in this text to take it as the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who have faith like him, that God will deliver them through Messiah. So I think that he's describing believers here. So the picture is Christ came to free the children who were held in slavery of fear of death. I think he's helping believers, those who would be believers. And the author of Hebrews describes with two words, I think, what Jesus does to help them. First says he came to deliver them, which means to free or release them in verse 15. And then in verse 16, it says that Christ came to help them. And that's a very powerful word in and of itself. It's a very touching, tender word. The word help means to lay firm hold of. It is used of taking a, a hold of a person in either a friendly or it can in some contexts describe a hostile way. I found this word help used in, in some contexts of taking hold of someone tenderly by the hand. And so in, in my opinion here in this description, uh, the author of Hebrews is depicting Christ as the pioneer of our salvation, as taking hold of his followers on the way to glory and helping them. Regardless, both words here are very powerful. They describe the strong action that Christ took as our champion to deliver us from death and the devil. So in this text, we learn that Jesus crushes a tyrant ruler who held us captive under the sharp sword of death. But there's more. It goes farther. And I want to go into what more you can learn in verses 17 and 18. And I want to look at the fifth and final blessing. So let's look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here finally, blessing number five, Christ's incarnational ministry provides help to those facing temptation. I think verse 17 is a key verse to everything that's come before it. I think it helps answer some of the questions I keep putting off. Here we learn in verse 17 that Christ had to be made like his brethren in every way and then were given an immediate purpose. This had to happen so that Jesus might become a high priest in God's service. I find the language in the argument very similar to verse 14. I think they're meant to help interpret one another. You look in verse 14, and the way it basically goes is Jesus had to become a human so that he might die and destroy the devil. Okay, you got that? He he became a human so that he might die. Here in verse 17, Jesus became human so that he might become a high priest. So I think the author wants to tell us more here about why Jesus had to die to defeat the devil. He had to die so that his priesthood would be qualified. 
He had to die so that the ultimate purpose of his humanity, or one of the ultimate purposes of his humanity in this text, would be realized. And you find that ultimate purpose at the very end of verse 17. Another purpose statement there, and it's translated this way by the ESV, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You see, Jesus became flesh and blood for the purpose of propitiating the sins of the people as a high priest. As we come to this part of the passage, I, I, you know, I, I think that the word propitiation is an important word, but it's probably one we don't know very well, right? Okay, when was the last time you, were, you used the word propitiation, you know, at the store? When was the last time you heard it at the workplace? It's not a word we use very well, very much, but it is a very important word. It is one that we need to wrestle with and we need to understand. And in some contexts, we still need to use it because it's a Bible word. Okay, so we dig into what is propitiation. The word propitiation could speak of expiation or propitiation. In some contexts, I think it's used of a covering or a canceling of sin. But in this context, I think the word propitiation is speaking of an appeasing of God's wrath, a satisfying of God's wrath. Okay, so as we go through this text, I think he's describing the fact that Jesus came for the purpose that he would appease God's wrath or satisfy God's wrath in our behalf. And let me just explain to you why that's necessary. Since God is perfectly holy, he demands holy perfection that we cannot attain. As a result of that, he is righteously angry with humanity over their sin. This is a righteous thing. He's perfectly holy. He demands holy perfection and so he's angry, righteously angry with our sin. And he just can't let it go. He just can't say, well, it's okay. You're trying. No, he's absolutely, perfectly holy. His glory is too uncompromising for him to do that. His honor is too important for him to just overlook sin. So the only way that he could, that we could be delivered from God's righteous wrath is if he did something for us. If he saved us, and he did. He sent his son to absorb in entirety the wrath of God against us. So Jesus on the cross took every last drop of God's wrath against us. He died on a cross in our place for our sins, experiencing God's wrath. Men and women, that is what propitiation is. And that is the basis for Christ's victory for us. So that now if Satan would try 
to bring accusation against us in the throne room of God. Yeah, but did you see what he did this week? He lied. See that, God? And he covered it. No evidence of guilt in his life. Do you see that, God? You see that he gossiped? He slandered. He said that one thing over here to a person, and he went behind their back, and he said that. You see that, God? God doesn't respond. So Satan says, well, do you consider his wicked, immoral thoughts this week? I mean, I can't remind, but what I observed about his external character would, would be that this man had an immoral imaginations this week. Did you see that, God? And so God responds by reading his covenant agreement with the children of Abraham, sons of Abraham. And it goes like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. My wrath has been appeased. The punishment has already gone out. Someone has taken every last ounce of my righteous anger toward their sin. They stand in Jesus and in his righteousness. And we say, men and women, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be the Son, who through his righteous obedience provided a way. And blessed be the Spirit, who energized the Lord Jesus Christ and rose him from the dead. Right? Praise the Lord. He is able to provide help to the children who were in bondage to the fear of death. But we're not quite done. Verse 18. I love verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This verse contains two important phrases. I want to look at each one of them. First it says, for because he himself suffered when tempted. There are a few ways you can take this phrase, but I like how the ESV and the NIV translate it here in a temporal relationship. He suffered when he was tempted. I don't know that this was the only way that Jesus suffered, but one of the ways he suffered is when he had to endure temptation. So when Jesus endured physical and spiritual temptation, it was a matter of suffering for him. I think it grieved him. It was difficult for him. As you consider the temptations of Jesus Christ, I don't know if you ever stop and think about this. I, I would explain it this way. I think Jesus clearly suffered some things that you and I have never suffered. He was tempted in some ways, I think, that you and I will never be tempted. Imagine the concentration of all of Satan's forces and attention on Jesus. The intensity of Satan's attacks on him, I think, would be an all-out campaign on one spot, on Jesus. That's different, I think, than the way we experience temptation. Ours is more uh, like small attacks out on the perimeter. With Jesus, it was all on him. So some of his temptations were unique to him being the Son of God, the Messiah. But we will say this as well, and the other way I'd say this is Jesus experienced temptations like every other human being. He faced the same sort of tests and temptations that you and I face on a daily basis, and these temptations grieved him. It was suffering for him to face them. But now I want to look at the second phrase. 
says, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So since Jesus suffered, he is able to help us. Now there's another sense in which Jesus suffered in a more significant way than us. Yes, it was more intense, all of Satan's arsenal, but it also lasted longer. One author said it this way, he said, Christ alone passed the test by overcoming every single temptation through which he went. You see, Christ faced temptation's strongest and most prolonged appeals, and he overcame every one of them. Sometimes I hear believers question whether or not Jesus can really understand the nature of the temptations that we face. And one of the reasons they question that is because he never sinned. So they'll say something like, uh, you know, because Jesus never sinned, doesn't that mean that his temptation was less than ours? In reality, I think the opposite is true. His temptations were much harder than ours. And I want to use an illustration to help you just think about this. If one person got into a, a boxing match with the world's strongest fighter, and this person gets knocked out in the first round, which probably would be my experience, we could say a few things about this man. He faced the world's strongest fighter. He experienced defeat, but he did not know the full force of a fight with this champion. If someone else had a match with a fighter, went all the way to the final round, took everything the fighter had, and then knocked him out in the end. We would say a few things about this man. This man not only knows exactly what the strong man can do, this man knows how to defeat him. And so if I wanted to learn to box well, I wouldn't go to the guy who got knocked out in the first round. We could talk, we could commiserate, we could share our misery, but I would want to talk to the guy who knocked out the world's strongest fighter. Christ not only experienced every temptation, he knows how to overcome it. And men and women, this should be great encouragement for us. William Lane, an author, a commentary, uh, an author and a commentary on the book of Hebrews said it. He had some interesting views about this part of the passage. He, he says that the author of Hebrews may have had the legendary Hercules in his mind when he penned these words about Jesus. I disagree with Lane here, don't normally do. But my champion was not some legendary, muscle-bound character. My champion was real. He was a little baby. He was abused, beaten, killed in meekness. Yet he, he overcame death and the devil, and he offers victory and help to us. The text says, he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. So as we close, perhaps you're experiencing fatigue and you feel like quitting on your commitment to Jesus Christ today. 
What do you do when you feel that attending corporate gatherings with other believers is losing appeal to you? What should you do? I would say this. Go to the one who experienced temptation to quit. Run to Jesus. Ask him for help. Maybe you feel the strong, enticing lure of the attractiveness of sin. What should you do? Go to the one. The one who faced the temptation to give in over and over and over again, yet never did. Run to Jesus. He will give you help. Or perhaps, final pastoral application for us. Perhaps there are some here today who are greatly discouraged about your physical condition. You are facing the prospects of death yourself. You don't know what it will be like, the pain, the difficulty, the moment. What should you do? You should go to the one who experienced that too. Run to Jesus for help. And he will take you, blessed child, softly by the hand and guide you into the Father's glory. For there is no suffering that you face that he didn't already face for you. Let's pray together. Let's take a moment in silent reflection and prayer. Perhaps you're here today. You know you're a sinner, but you have never believed in Jesus. As you've heard the sermon today and the description of what propitiation means, that God is righteously angered with sin because he's absolutely perfect. You, you recognize that you need deliverance. If you are here today and have not turned from your sins to God through his son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that. Will you believe today in Jesus and profess there right in your seat while I'm talking quietly to him that you receive God's gift of salvation found in the name of the eternal Son of God who died and rose again for you. Won't you do that now? Perhaps others here have succumbed to temptation this week and you're discouraged. Would the terms of our covenant agreement with God encourage you today? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let <laughs> bring you words of encouragement today. Jesus paid, he absorbed God's wrath in your place. But might these also, might these words also encourage you to live in a way that says no to temptation, says no to our flesh, 
says no to the allurement and attractions of sin. And when we struggle, might we remember the one who knows how to defeat temptation. Might we run to Jesus for help as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.